1: I from Slate.
2: Really, not until the 90s did things get bad. David flew from
3: Melbourne to L.A. I was living in Santa Monica at the time. And I picked him up at L.A. airport. And he could barely walk,
2: you know, to the car. I was really worried about him. He just let things go during that long plane flight if you don't have good kidney function you need to mind your protein and carbohydrate intake and he was planning to take the
3: train from LA to Colorado I was really starting to have my doubts about it but I took him to Union Station and I was watching him start to walk off and I thought no, we just can't let him go like this and I called Steffi, and she said, call 911. In the end, we didn't need to call 911. There was the paramedic right there who did drive us.
2: And Al took him straight to the hospital, and I firmly believe saved his life. There had been other hospitalizations before that, but there weren't crises attending to them. So that was by far the worst.
3: Then Steffi came out from Princeton, you know, as quickly as possible. It was really just one of the most touching moments. When the two of them were reunited, they embraced, and, you know, he was just so, so happy to see her, and just the warmth with which he greeted her.
2: Eventually, it became clear that he suffered diabetic kidney failure. It became clear that a transplant would be a necessity if he was to maintain any kind of normal lifestyle. And I said, well, would you accept a kidney from me? I had two perfectly healthy kidneys. And he said, absolutely not.
0: From Slate, this is Hi-Fi Nation. Philosophy in story form. Recording from Vassar College, here's Barry Lamb.
1: On our final episode of our mini-series, The Man of Many Worlds, we talk about David Lewis's last year, 2000 to 2001, when he published his final works, gave his final lectures, and wrote a close friend a note that would be the last idea ever appearing in print under his own name. The end of David's life and career makes a natural marker to the end of 20th century thought in the analytic philosophical tradition beginning with Bertrand Russell and George Edward Moore in the early 1900s. Lewis ended his career after having already revived metaphysics in that tradition. He also made breakthroughs in the study of language and mind. But in the end, he was thinking about evil and how much of it was not only permitted but endorsed by the Christian philosophers who were his most prominent critics. Today, we talk about David Lewis versus the Christians and the legacy he leaves behind in the 21st century. How would you characterize your marriage with David? I mean, that's a big question.
2: People used to ask how could you be married to somebody like that? And the answer is, you just are. Who would ask that? Oh, some shit-ass graduate student. That's a a stupid question. It's a very (laughs) stupid question. People would say, what do you talk about at breakfast? And the answer to that is, well, what would you like for dinner and what all the cat did yesterday and that kind of stuff. Neither of us much wanted to be parents. It was agreed early on that we weren't going to have children. Neither of us much wanted them. So that, so that was never an issue. I think that neither of us much trusted the other as a parent. I mean, can you see David Lewis as a, as a parent singing lullabies to his children?
4: I
1: don't see why not.
2: <laughs> I bet you he would have sung yeah.
1: too. I
4: see that. He wasn't a bad singer. People, perhaps you may not know that. He was actually quite good at singing. Frank
1: Jackson, philosopher in Australia and friend.
4: So he would sing Australian folk ballads really, really rather well. My children got on wonderfully well with him. Two of my children were quite young when David was visiting Australia. He might do a bit of singing, and um, he was slightly unusual, and I think that the children found that very interesting. They knew he was a terrific good philosopher, but they weren't in awe of him in the way that uh, fellow philosophers tended to be.
2: Well, he treated children like, sort of like baby adults. Frank Jackson's children uh, are very nice. When they were babies, they were very nice. and David was a kind of adjunct uncle. He'd walk with them and tell them stories and sing songs. In his fairly starchy way, David was affectionate with them.
1: When you said you didn't trust each other as parents, and you mentioned a little bit about David. What did you mean by he might not have trusted you as a parent?
2: Well, I drank more than was really appropriate. That was never an issue, but it was, it was clear that I liked to drink. I don't think he thought that was what mothers properly did. Why did I not really trust David as a parent? Not being able to disconnect from Doing philosophy and go to doing parental kinds of things. Picking, you know, picking the kids up from school and cooking them dinner. David couldn't boil water.
5: I mean, I figure like his students were his kids.
1: Ellen Lewis, David's sister.
5: Of course they were. He treated them with the love and care and tenderness and long-standing nurturance that you would treat any child that, that you would love, whether you raised them or not. Their care of their cats was of a similar deep attachment and endearing care. I mean, if you hear about how they treated Magpie and Bruce and Long, there's no question that they loved them with the deepest hearts.
1: If students count as offspring in any sense... Then David Lewis had 26 of them. These are the graduate students whose Ph.D. dissertations list him as primary advisor. It's how academia traces lineages and legacies. He had far more students, if you count supervising senior theses for undergraduates. It was enough to populate major cities around the world, where he and Steffi would visit and stay. And for someone who by all accounts found it difficult to connect with people casually in social contexts, his students remember him with great affection and fierce loyalty. As for his cats, David Lewis very famously published a rebuttal to one of his own papers in a journal. Because it was so weird to be refuting yourself in print, he published it under a pseudonym, the name of his cat, Bruce.
0: Bruce Le Cat. Hi Fi Nation will return after these messages.
1: Back to the year 2000, David Lewis's kidneys were failing.
2: I said, look, this is a a very selfish gift. You with diabetic kidney failure, we cannot do a lot of things we like doing, like going to restaurants. And it began to be clear that we couldn't travel much anymore. And eventually he came around and we did the transplant and it went easy for me. Kept him
3: alive for a very precious further year. And what a year it was. It was uh, Annus Mirabilis, as we say, where he just produced one important paper after another.
7: David and had come up to New York because I was giving a talk, and it was really about the various ways in which religion is in trouble.
1: Philip Kitcher is John Dewey Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University, now retired. He and his wife, Pat Kitcher, got their PhDs at Princeton in the early 70s, and have known the Lewises since then, becoming very close friends. The relationship between science and religion, and religion and society, is something Kitcher is renowned for writing about. It wasn't David Lewis's focus. But it was undeniable that Christian philosophers had a long-time preoccupation with David Lewis. Almost all of his metaphysical positions had been the subject of their criticism. From the existence of other possible worlds, to the eternalistic universe, the four-dimensional self, even his views about time travel had as their most prominent critics, thinkers like Robert and Marilyn Adams, Alvin Plantinga, Peter Van Inwagen all known for their philosophical defenses of central doctrines about the Christian God and Christian theology. It's worth noting that, unlike in secular philosophy, metaphysics in the Christian theological tradition always played an important role in making sense of the cosmological commitments of the faith.
7: What, of course, this led to was a long conversation that David and I had starting that evening. And I think we also had a phone conversation after this.
1: We're talking about 2000 here, somewhere around then, right?
7: That's right. That's right. It's 2000. In 2001, as you know, David dies. So of course, we go down for the the burial. I don't know whether you were there. Did you go to David's memorial service? Yes. Yes, I did. So you know that I I sang an elegy. Yes, 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 yes. It uh... absolutely wiped me out. I was sitting in the in the restaurant afterwards with David's friends, and I, I just said to Pat, you know, I'm emotionally exhausted.
1: Philip, at this point, was in possession of an outline of notes David wrote and sent to him about an issue he had with Christians, something that had been bothering him all of those years he was interacting with them, cordially, respectfully, and sometimes even warmly. It was up to Philip to decide whether to present these ideas in print.
7: I talked to Steffi about how it would go, and I then wrote it up and showed it to
3: Steffi. I think David was really troubled by, well, what you might call the problem of evil, but in particular, the problem of hell.
1: Alan Hayek, Australian National University.
3: So how could a benevolent God consign people to an unspeakable suffering and torment forever
1: The thing that troubled him was... John Bigelow, friend and
8: retired philosopher. No matter how hard he tried, people like Plantinga seemed to be nice people. But he couldn't really understand how they could believe in a God who would give some people eternal bliss and other people eternal damnation. There was something emotionally unhealthy about worshipping...
3: Such a God... And yet you know people who were close friends of his worshiped this God.
7: the idea of sentencing your creatures to an eternity of torment. Even a very long interval of torment seems
3: deeply evil. This is just a monumental injustice, like completely disproportionate to what anyone could deserve, you know whatever they did in their finite life.
7: That's just a profoundly immoral idea. And it seems to me that the thought is absolutely correct.
1: The name of the paper eventually published by Philip Kitcher on behalf of David was called Divine Evil. Divine Evil isn't just about the evil exhibited by an individual who decides to torture people eternally for a crime. Not least of which is the crime of improper belief. It's also about how evil is infectious. The torturer is evil, but so is the person who worships a torturer, not only despite their evil, but because of it. So, what does this say about the person who is friends with a person who worships such a supremely evil leader? Treats them with respect and sometimes even esteem. The evil of the Christian God, for David Lewis, seems to have this effect of infecting everyone with a degree of evil and immorality. Because all of us love some Christian, our friends with some Christians and even if not, are friends with friends of Christians, and so on. This thought that David Lewis had toward the end of his life was a serious re-examination of how much his own moral character may be implicated in his ongoing respect and engagement with people he came to conclude were worshipping a deity more evil than any Hitler could be on earth.
7: The simple way for religious people to get over this is to revise their doctrines of uh, the afterlife and stop portraying their deity as an enormous narcissist.
3: Well, then maybe it was Planning. I was writing with, to David about this problem of hell. And whoever it was said, David, don't think of hell as fire and brimstone, boiling oil. Don't think of it as eternal torment. Think of hell as being disconnected from God, being separated from God. And as I recall, David replied, I am separated from God. And trust me, it's not hell.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hi-Fi Nation will return after these messages.
1: I asked Donald Lewis, David's younger brother, about the role of religion in their family growing up. Uh, there's no religion in the family. I'm only asking because one of the things that he was working on before he died, it was a paper about the existence of God, really. And it wasn't just that he wasn't religious and didn't believe. He That paper, in some ways expressed a kind of hostility towards people who did (laughs) really yeah i mean it was kind Mm. of i think the argument in the paper is that there's there might be something wrong with people who actually do believe in god in light of the evidence of evils And, Mm. and and i was just wondering if there was more in the family that was just not religious there was more there was something actually actively thinking that religion was doing evil in the world, something like that. I had never picked up on much of that. At one point, I thought I wanted to go to church, so they let me, and, and I decided I didn't want to, and that was the end of that. I never heard any, you
7: know, diatribes against it or from anybody.
1: Just what were David Lewis's religious views? Well... Systematic philosopher that he was, they simply followed from his general philosophical views.
3: There's this good line about him. David Lewis was the only polytheistic atheist. <laughs> he believed in the plurality of gods. You know, many other worlds have gods, but our world, the actual world, happens not to have a god.
1: If every possibility is an actuality in some possible world, then every possible deity, or arrangement of deities, very well exists in other possible worlds. The Greek myths involving Zeus, Hera, and Athena, if they are indeed coherent, consistent stories that are possible, exists in a world where they reign, exactly as in the myths. The Judeo-Christian God, in all of his mixture of good and evil, reigns supreme in at least some possible worlds. But whether there is a deity or deities that rule this world will depend on the facts of this particular world. And here, observation and study suggested to David Lewis that there was no such deity, But David Lewis does think the Judeo-Christian God exists. It reigns supreme in some world that exists. That seems to put him in much closer company with Christian philosophers than people like Richard Dawkins or other new atheists, who deny God's existence completely. So why was it that David Lewis's metaphysics were such ongoing targets of Christian philosophers. I went to a Christian philosopher to find out. There seems to be a connection, if not logically, then sociologically, uh, between theism and an aversion to modal realism. The view that there are all of these other possible worlds. Can you talk about why you think there's a tension between theism and David Lewis's metaphysics?
5: So it's a huge deal for Christians and Jews and Muslims that the God that they worship and believe in is one God.
1: Megan Sullivan, University of Notre Dame.
5: Exactly one God. And this is where Christians get into trouble because then you got to explain how it's one God, but it's God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And then you've got a lot of fighting and like, you know, big source of constant theological discussion between Islam and Christianity is like, do the Christians really believe in three gods? And, and when they should believe in one, it was the one God thing, extraordinarily important part of those religious traditions. And you can understand why God is all powerful. He's morally perfect. He should have no competition. Certainly not like a duplicate of himself anywhere that's competing for being the absolute summum bonum best being in the universe. And if you start, Like trying to back off from that and allowing him to have competitors, then it's unclear that he explains the causal order of the universe. It's unclear why you should worship him. It's unclear that he exists. I mean, Anselm's argument is like, you should believe in God because you should believe that something is that which none greater can be conceived. And that's got to be God. So as soon as you start like diminishing God in any way or giving him any competition, you start undermining all of your reasons for wanting him in the first place. Second thing, and here's where, you know, Christians are probably have a harder time with modal realism than even other Abrahamic traditions. We believe that in one of his forms as Jesus, he took up space time. Like he was born, he had a mom and dad. He had adventures in the desert. He got into some trouble with the Romans. That all happened with a body and in space and time. But Jesus is God. That part we've been working out for the last 2000 years. He tried to add modal realism into that, you know, temperamental, theological, metaphysical soup. Modal realism says there's like a bunch of different Jerusalems. Is Jesus born in all of them? And he does like slightly different things. Like in one, he cures this leper, but in another one, he doesn't cure this leper. On one of them, he dies on Good Friday, but another one, he dies on like Saturday or he dies on Thursday or whatever. As soon as you start to multiply Christ, you've already got like a humongous challenge for Christianity. Like, you know, no, no, I don't want to deal with that. That seems like deeply unorthodox. I mean, there are philosophers who've kind of dipped their toes in the water of like, maybe each of David Lewis's possible worlds could have their own counterpart of Christ who went to like save people who believe in him. But I don't know, like, did he teach different things in those different worlds? That's problematic because you think like he's teaching necessary truths about us and the universe and god and its relationship to him and those should be true in all possible worlds and that his life is a model for a good human life not just accidentally but like really robustly for christians jesus is a huge problem with trying to endorse modal realism I mean, maybe you could have, like, you know, possible world-hopping Jesus, like quantum leap leaping Jesus, where it's the same one that's visiting all of them. But you start, then you start thinking, like, I don't know, this is already looking, like, a little bit problematic. And you definitely wouldn't want worlds where, like, he wasn't in any of them. And it's
1: not enough for Christians to know or think that God or Jesus— rules over the whole universe just this universe not all universes
5: again we're trying not to take the wind out of the sails of god like he's the necessary perfect being so i think that's one reason it's just like once you try to add modal realism to the already complicated counting problem based in christianity it just looks like nope <laughs> i don't know i can't No, too hard I think also there's a question of freedom, and that matters a lot. Again, I speak somebody from a Christian tradition, but this thought that every actual decision I make is necessary because it's contained in this world and it had to happen this way from before I was even born, it was set that way. It doesn't seem to really be a lot of room for me making free choices to do good or to do evil. And then to need forgiveness and for God to give that forgiveness and to give grace, like the kind of moral outlook that comes out of modal realism is so like fixed and deterministic. And the reason why a lot of people are attracted to Christianity is thinking like, I have some control over my life, God has control we're like, trying to negotiate my freedom with God's freedom and God is forgiving me when I make mistakes and he knows the future, but I have a certain amount of control over the future. Trying to make all that work out, modal realism just like runs that over with a bulldozer. like doesn't leave a lot of room for any of that tension, which I think is really important for Christians.
1: Let's be honest. David Lewis's modal realism poses no threat to Christianity. One of these has maybe three billion adherents. The other, I don't know, maybe one, maybe zero. Anyone out there now listening to this podcast, thinking about converting? Not even his friends and closest family or his students count as adherents. In fact, did David Lewis believe it? Do you know if he ever struggled with the fact that the actual substantive theses that he defended, a lot of them, not all of them, um, people went, Wow, that's genius, but we don't believe that,
3: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Did he ever, yeah. Well, yes, and I, I once asked him, you know, so David, do you like, really believe in the plurality of worlds? And, you know, pause, beard, stroke?
2: Yeah. Um,
3: Sometimes I wonder, but yes, I do.
8: (laughs) (laughs) I remember once saying to David Lewis, gosh, that's a really neat idea. Of course, I don't agree with it, but it's really interesting. And I remember him looking really downcast And he said, I wish someone would someday say they found it persuasive and believed it rather than just, it's interesting to figure out why it's wrong. So he went on for decades before he had anyone he could respect who agreed with him about this stuff. Who was that? Hmm? that? I don't know who the first ones were, but nowadays this talk about uh, many worlds' hypotheses in physics. I think there are the views that there might be concrete T- space times that are not spatially or spatio related to ours. they are possible worlds in his description, I think.
1: Is it your sense that David uh, believed everything that he wrote or most of what he wrote rather than this is an exercise in systematic metaphysics?
8: Oh yes, he believed. He didn't like bullshitting. He didn't like game playing. No, he believed it all right.
1: It's true that there is such a thing as the many-worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, and that that view has some adherence in the physics community. Even there, though, physicists aren't talking about the same worlds as David Lewis. There are plenty of universes on Lewis's views that don't have the same laws of physics that our world has. There are plenty of worlds untouched and unaffected by the subatomic particles that begin in our world. Physics, unfortunately, won't ever confirm the existence of David Lewis's pluriverse. So the figure of David Kellogg Lewis raises one last interesting philosophical issue. Is the legacy of a philosopher measured the number of adherents or defenders of their views. Because if so, I don't know how well David Lewis would fare. So I asked everyone I talked to what they think the legacy of David Lewis would be. As a scholar, as a philosopher, as a scholar of Lewis, what do you think his lasting impact will be?
3: His lasting impact, I think, Will be his philosophical character.
1: Anthony Fisher, University of Washington.
3: He believed a very outlandish, a very bizarre hypothesis, and he sincerely believed it. And he believed it because of argument. And he had the courage to follow the argument where it led him. And that's what was his driving force for particularly modal realism. And very few people believe modal realism, but they could see and they did see. And in the future, they will see the philosophical character that led him to to believe that view. And I think that will be a very strong, lasting impact.
5: I think
1: Megan Sullivan, Notre Dame.
5: David Lewis reminds a lot of philosophers that you can be interested in logic and rigor and kind of technical focused arguments but you can still have a blast. Like you can have so much fun while you're doing it. If you go back and reread his papers, almost all of them, they show this kind of like style and these wacky examples. And he talks about his cats all the time in the articles. And he just shows somebody who clearly like loves thinking through the puzzles and moving the pieces around and is able to express that in the way that he writes about them. That's going to be his greatest legacy when you go back and read his papers, they're just a joy.
1: Are you pretty confident that 100 years from now people will still be reading David Lewis?
4: Oh, I'm sure they will, yeah.
1: Frank Jackson, Australia National University.
4: It's partly the quality of the work. It's partly the breadth. It covers so many topics. But also it's the clarity. His papers, uh, they're a lot of fun to read and they're clear and forceful. I'm sure people will always be reading reading Lewis, just in the same way as i will always be reading Quine, and always reading Kripke. besides like I hope they will be reading those three people. Yeah. Like,
3: you know, the philosophers in the pantheon...
1: Alan Hayek.
3: He was systematic in the manner of uh, Leibniz or Descartes or Hume. For a start, I think he'll be remembered for that. I think he'll be remembered for his breadth, just major impacts on so many different fields. Actually, if I may, can I just tell a quick story? Uh, One time in in Princeton in the Philosophy Lounge, they had a bulletin board with comics and, you know, small, funny pieces.
1: As a joke about just how prolific and wide-ranging David Lewis's scholarship was, someone printed out a search of all the papers published by David Lewis. And posted it on this bulletin board.
3: So going down the list, you saw familiar papers. David Lewis, Attitudes Dei Dicto Day de Say. David Lewis, Scorekeeping in a Language Game. But then <laughs> the list started to get a bit less familiar. David Lewis, Chevrolet Auto Parts. David Lewis, Tapestries in the Ming Dynasty.
1: As a joke, one of the graduate students took this list and circled all of the odd papers and wrote, ha ha, look at David Lewis, such a polymath. Of course, knowing that the name David Lewis is not uncommon.
3: But the thing is that, in a way, the joke slightly backfired because within the circle was David Lewis' finite counterforce, which really was our David Lewis. It was this brilliant paper on nuclear deterrence.
7: David has inspired me.
1: Philip Kitcher, Columbia University.
7: You can tell the way he's inspired me. One thing we share, we want to have a way of approaching a whole range of problems and seeing them as fitting together into some whole. I hope the legacy will be the sweeping vision.
5: That legacy that is handed down in some sense from Hume, right?
1: Helen Beebe. University of Manchester. She's one of the only philosophers that told me that she thinks David Lewis's legacy will be his precise metaphysical picture.
5: All of the possible world stuff and everything that follows from that, right? Counterfactual analysis of causation, his work on temporal parts. Like, It's an extraordinary thesis, right? And it's, even if the, that kind of project fails in the end, it's extraordinary how successfully Lewis managed to carry out that project. Extraordinary how far you can get with that when you're, when you're David Lewis.
1: Do you think he knew or appreciated his own greatness or was he not that kind of person?
3: I think earlier you called him a philosopher's philosopher and as as we might say, a pure philosopher, he really cared about philosophy. And I don't think he liked the various trappings of the profession. Fame, you know, as sort of part of the trappings of the profession, I I don't think that side of it interested him. He wasn't writing something to try and become famous. He, He just wrote what he did and he became famous.
6: In actuality, there are no gods, or anyway, none who pay any heed to the lives of mere mortals.
7: You are born, and after a while you die.
1: Before I go, can I have you talk a little bit about your life for the past, oh gosh, 17 years now that David's been gone?
2: What's it like? Well, I can be said to be lonely.
1: Steffi Lewis passed away in 2019. According to David Lewis, she has survived, they are survived by an infinite number of counterparts, many of whom are enjoying a pandemic-free life in old age in Melbourne, Australia. This is the end of The Man of Many Worlds, but Hi-Fi Nation Season 5 continues with episodes every two weeks between now and after the new year. If you haven't already, follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher. And remember, you can get an ad-free version of this and every other Slate podcasts for just a dollar for the first month and $59 per year
0: after that. Just click on the link to subscribe to Slate Plus in the show notes. Hi-Fi Nation is written, produced, and edited by Barry Lamb, Associate Professor and Chair of Philosophy at Vassar College. Executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Alicia Montgomery. Editorial director for Slate Podcasts is Gabriel Roth. Senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. Managing producer for Slate Podcasts is Asha Saluja. Editor of Slate Plus is me, Chow Tu. Production assistance this season provided by Jake Johnson. Visit hifination.org for complete transcript, show notes, and reading list for every episode. That's hiphi Follow HiFi Nation on Facebook and Twitter and at the website for updates on stories and ideas.
6: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming.